What's up, Stitches? Welcome to So What? I'm so happy to have you here today, and I hope wherever you are and whatever time it is, that you're having a nice day and that things are going well for you. And if they're not, I hope that hearing an overly enthusiastic gal talk about historic needlework will brighten your day. Because needlework is great, but you probably already know that, and that's why you're listening to this podcast in the first place. Anyway... Today's episode is all about a type of historic needlework we haven't even touched thus far on So What, and that is null binding. That's N-A-L-B-I-N-D-I-N-G. We'll be tracking that form of stitchery over the course of many millennia, from approximately 6500 BC to the 21st century. What a journey! What a joy! As always, images and sources of what I'm discussing today are on the So What social media pages. That's at So What Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And I said this last episode, but as a reminder, or in case you didn't hear it, the podcast now has a website and a Patreon. The website has all the images and sources and the 10 most recent episodes, as well as a way to contact me with any thoughts or ideas or questions or concerns or whatever else. The website is predictably sowhatpodcast.com. Yay! And the Patreon is so you can support the making of this podcast. If you want to, there's obviously no pressure, but if you want to, I will not say no. That's at patreon.com slash sowhatpodcast. And as you'll see, there are three ways to support, and supporting gives you exclusive access to stuff. And if you're not into it or you're not able to support the pod monetarily, that is so fine. Obviously, that is not a problem at all. It's just there if you want to because running a podcast is actually really expensive, it turns out. So yes, it's sowhatpodcast.com and patreon.com slash sowhatpodcast. No question marks in the URLs or anything like that. It's just so what podcast. Okay, back to null binding, and let's start with the basics. What is null binding? Great question! It's a Scandinavian word that literally means binding with a needle or needle binding, which makes sense because it's null binding, which is like now binding, which is like needle binding, binding, right? Yes. It's a type of needlework that predates both knitting and crochet, so you know it is old. But it's also similar to both of those in that it is a stitching technique that takes spun yarn and turns it into objects for wear or decoration or home use, things like socks or mittens, but also like, I don't know, wall tapestries or whatever else. So yes, there are similarities, but knot bending is also super different from knitting and crocheting. It differs from knitting in that lengths have to be pieced together in knot bending, but in knitting, one uses just one continuous strand of yarn. And it differs from crocheting in that in null bending, one has to pass the full length of the working thread, yarn, thing, through each loop, and in crochet, the work is formed only of loops and never involves the free end. Does that all make sense? I hope it does. But when it comes to archaeological pieces of null bending from hundreds or thousands of years ago, it's sometimes really hard to tell null bending apart from knitting. That's because the finished products could look really similar. And before I get into the history of null bending, I just want to shout out to the people who are still null bending today, so many thousands of years after the needlecraft began. It's still practiced by the women of the Nanti tribe, the indigenous people of the Camasilla region of Peru. The Nanti use null bending to make bracelets. And null bending is also still popular in Scandinavian and Balkan countries, as well as Central Asia, Iran, Oman, and New Guinea. And I know that there are lots of null benders outside of those regions, so shout out to all of you if you're listening, no matter where you are, for keeping that type of needlework alive. 
Okay, okay, let's get into the actual history of it, and then I'll talk more about the technique and characteristics. There are archaeological examples of knob bending from Scandinavia, Finland, the British Isles, Egypt, Polynesia, the Americas, and the Arabian Peninsula. So the earliest known example of knob bending dates to around 6,500 BC and was found in Nahal Hamar Cave in Israel. The next oldest example is from 4,200 BC and was found in Tybrand Vig, a Mesolithic fishing village in Denmark. And there's going to be a lot of names, as you can already tell in this episode, that I will not be pronouncing correctly. I am so sorry. I'm really trying. Your girl is just extremely bad at foreign languages. Okay, back to the actual chronology. At this point, most of the null bending examples from the Mesolithic era Stone Age, approximately 4,200 BC, have been found in Denmark, with a few more found in Switzerland. Switzerland. But of course, as many of you probably already know, textiles really do not survive very well at all, so it's unclear the true extent of null bending, how widespread it was, and when it really began, and where, and all of that stuff. Some scholars believe that because null bending doesn't require a continuous thread, that it predates the invention of continuous spinning that could be done on a drop spindle or wheel. That is wild! That is so old! There are more later examples, which obviously makes sense. Many null-bound pieces appear in the Paracas and Nazca textiles of Peru and the surrounding areas. These pieces are variants of null bending in cross-knit and simple looping styles. The Paracas culture was an Andean society existing between approximately 800 BC and 100 BC, and the Nazca culture followed that from 100 BC to 800 AD. And there are also a lot of slightly more recent Egyptian examples. There are at least 100 extant null-bound objects from Egypt dating from 200 AD to the 12th century. A lot of the surviving Egyptian examples are socks, which are delightful because they are really stripy and have a separation between the big toe area and the area for the rest of the toes, so they look like they'd be perfect for flip-flops. You could hear it in my voice, I honestly giggle every time I think about them because they are so fun and, I don't know, flirty? Maybe. Anyway, rock on ancient Egyptians. There are similar contemporaneous examples that were found in Dura Europos in present-day Syria, Masada in present-day Israel, and Semna in present-day Sudan. Then the Viking Age rolls up from 793 to 1066 AD. 1066 AD is probably the better way of saying it, but I stand by what I said. Anyway, knob bending goes the heck off. Knob bending everywhere. Everywhere you look, there's knob bending happening. I mean, not a huge number of examples survive, but those that do are significant. There's a wool sock from around 970, and that was found at Coppergate in York, England. Fittingly, it's called the Coppergate Sock. Which, like, honestly, great band name. Anyway, it's the only known archaeological example of knob bending in the UK. And honestly, it's so fun. The sock looks just like an ankle sock you'd wear today when you want to look cool in your sneakers and not have socks that are too long. The sock was made of stitches that had never been seen before, so it's the only example of the York stitch in the world. There's a really nice paragraph about the sock's origins and knob bending over time from the Heritage Crafts Association of the UK, and I'm going to read it to you because I really like it. It reads, quote, It has been suggested that this sock came into the city of Jorvik on the foot of a Scandinavian trader. However, it was found in a settlement context, and it is known that within Anglian culture, single needle knitting also most likely took place as there are surviving examples in Germany. 
To what extent this craft survived after the Norman Conquest is difficult to say. However, we know that the two-needle knitting started to be practiced in Holland during the mid-13th century, and the historical foundation of looped knitting comes from knob bending as a foundation. 17th century tatting could also be another evolution out of knob bending. As mentioned previously, due to the lack of archaeological material, it is very difficult to establish a good chronological timeline for this craft, end quote. So yeah, there we go, a convenient little overview of the history of knob bending. Also, Jorvik is the name used by historians for the south of Northumbria during the period from the late 9th century to the first half of the 10th century. Just as a little uh, FYI. Okay, onwards. Other famous knoll bending pieces from this period, from around 900 to 1100 ish, include a mitten from Iceland, panels of a snood from Maamen, I am hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly, Maamen, Denmark a wool and silk hat from Egypt, and a fragment from Novgorod, also hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly, Novgorod, Russia. The Maman example dates from winter 970 to 971, which is so wild to me because that is so precise. How? Like, like more than 1,300 years ago. Ugh, amazing. That example was found in a grave of a man buried with expensive clothes and the gnaw-bound parts involved gold and silver threads. So, fancy. Good job to that rich man, I guess? Other examples from the period include a tricolored fabric, presumed to be from stockings, found near Kokomaki, Finland, and a mitten found in Oslo Old Town in Norway. And then fast forward to the Middle Ages, and there are more delightful examples. The website knollbound.com has been really helpful when it comes to delving into historic examples of knoll bending from prehistoric times to the 17th century. So thank you, knollbound.com! Here's a paragraph from that website that goes over extant examples of knoll bending from the Middle Ages onwards. Quote, from the Middle Ages, several pieces have been found. For example, in Sweden, there has been found a sock in Uppsala and a mitten in Lund from this period. In Finland, some stocking fragments with an unusual connection stitch were found in Kaukola. Eight fragments of knoll binding were found in Novgorod. A pair of 70-centimeter-long linen stockings, complete with tapes, from the 12th century were found at the parish church in Delsberg, or as it is known, Delamont, Switzerland. The Asla, Ashla, I'm not sure, A-S-L-E, mitten, found in Sweden and originally dated to the first century AD, has since been carbon dated to between 1510 to 1640 AD. There are also examples to be found in Italy and South America. Undated examples show up in places as varied as Lapland and Africa. There are four mittens from the ramparts of Copenhagen in Denmark that are unfortunately undateable, but possibly from 1659 AD, end quote. What a wild ride and so many apologies for likely mispronouncing every single name I read. But as you can see, there are so many examples across so many centuries and even across continents. I honestly love that journey for knoll bending. Now, something I haven't been able to figure out and haven't found at all in any scholarship, and let's be real, there's not a huge amount of scholarship on knoll bending, or maybe I'm just not looking in the right places, is how knoll bending techniques became so widespread. Like, how was the same technique, the Coptic stitch, used in both Egypt in 400 to 600 AD and in Peru in 100 AD? Were people coming up with this technique separately at a similar time? 
It's not like there was widespread travel or trade at this point, so that's the only logical thing I can think of. Was this some sort of magical simultaneous invention? I don't know what's happening, but I like it. But if you know the answer, please let me know and I'll share it on the So What social media pages because that's an issue that's bothered me every time I have thought about null bending and I feel like the answer is out there and I just can't find it. So moving into the 20th century, null bending was used in some parts of Northern Europe until the 1950s when it probably declined because of changes in the textile industry. But luckily, null bending has never disappeared. It's still made in the regions I mentioned earlier and is also made by savvy needleworkers. What a delight. So there's your speedy journey through the history of null bending. And now let's get into some techniques, shall we? Yes, we shall. So first of all, null bending involves a single-eyed needle that is broad and flat. Historically, those were made out of wood, antler, or bone. Hardcore. Wool is used most often because it's easy to bind together short lengths of yarn, which you gotta do in null bending anyway. Yarn made of other fibers can be joined in other ways, but yeah, wool is the most bueno in this situation. Null bending takes those short lengths of thread and creates an elastic and durable fabric. Now, I'm going to take a quote from Wikipedia, and yes, my school teachers would scream if they knew that, but there's a paragraph about the technique from the null bending Wikipedia page, and I found it the most comprehensible and comprehensive explanation of the stitch technique. So I'm going to share it with you all so we can all understand the technique. Here it is. Quote, the stitches are commonly, but not invariably, gauged by wrapping them around the thumb. In its simplest form, the needle is passed through a seed loop to form a new loop, taking care to avoid tightening either into a firm knot. The needle is then passed through the new loop, repeating the process until a chain of desired length has been formed. Subsequent stitches are formed in the same manner, but are also joined laterally to the corresponding stitch in the chain. The extended process is similarly repeated with reference to the preceding row rather than the initial chain. Fabric is commonly worked in a single direction, in the round, forming spirals and tubes for socks and mittens. The work may also be turned at the end of a row for fabric worked flat. Specialized notation is used to indicate the path of the needle as it is worked through the pre-existing fabric with its passage under a loop shown as U and over a loop as O. A slash shows where the yarn changes direction and returns through loops it has already passed. If a loop is skipped, an O or U is put in brackets. If there is more than one change of direction, a colon is used. The connection to the previous row is described using the letter F if the yarn passes through the loop from the front, or B if the yarn passes through the loop from the back, as well as a number to show how many loops are worked in this way. Stitches that can be described in this manner vary significantly in appearance, texture, and elasticity." End quote. So basically, loops. Lots of loops. So many loops. And lots of fun and flirty specialized notation. And that notation involves letters and symbols like U, O, F, B, 1, 2, colon, dash, slash, and parentheses. This type of notation is called Hansen's notation. And writing out that notation looks like, and I'm going to say it out loud and it's not going to make sense, but bear with me, dash, slash, dash, O, F, 1, B, 1, or U, U in parentheses, O, slash, U, O colon U 
O O F one plus one. It's truly like a whole other language. And now I do want to touch on a few specific knob bending stitches to give you a little flavor of the thing. There are many, many of them, and I'll only talk about a few because they relate to the historic examples I discussed earlier. Most knob bending stitches get their names from archaeological examples. So like the stitch found on the Egyptian socks is called the Coptic stitch, and the stitch found on the Coppergate sock is called the York stitch. There are stitch families too, like all the Finnish stitches and Russian stitches. I'll start with Coptic stitch, which is also called Tarim stitch. Items made with this stitch have been found during archaeological digs in West China, Yemen, Peru, and Egypt. The front side of the Coptic stitch resembles knit stitches, but the loops are twisted and upside down. And although it looks a bit like knitting, it behaves in a different way when it's stretched and when it's ribbed, it doesn't pull together as strongly. So like if you were making a big ol' ribbed sock, it wouldn't stay up as well. The York stitch is also known as the Coppergate stitch or Jorvik stitch, both of which make sense if you remember what I talked about earlier. It relies on loops just like all the other knob bending stitches, but it ends up with stitches that look diagonal. I think it's pretty cute, and I'm sure you will agree with me when you go to the So What social media pages and see the pictures for yourselves. The Asley or Assel, I'm truly not sure how it's pronounced. The internet has not really helped me in this situation. The Asle stitch, named after a mitten found at Asle Mos in Gotland, Sweden, is one of the most sophisticated stitches, and it's one of the few that produces really different front and back sides, and it's clearly one of the few that I really cannot pronounce at all. That stitch is especially dense, and therefore really good at keeping one warm. There's a Finnish website that lists many, many knob bending stitches. They go through, I counted them, 118 stitches, and I'm certain that's not all of them. There is truly so much variety in the world of knob bending, I am shooketh to my core. And now, before I conclude this episode, let's have a little baby foray into the characteristics of knob bending, shall we? The general vibe. Knob bending is often considered to be more laborious and slower than knitting, but that's not really true, especially if you do the simpler stitches. Each knob bending stitch may take longer than a knit stitch, but the whole knob bending project is usually quicker because each row is really tall. It's the equivalent of like two or three knitting rows. It's also easier on the shoulder, back, and hands, rumor has it, and the fabric it produces can be more dense and durable than knit ones. So like big, thick fabrics. But knob bending can also create some very not thick fabrics. They can be thin and flexible instead. It really depends on which of the over 100 stitches you decide to use. What is very rad to me about knob bending is that it doesn't unravel, so you don't need to finish it off with any special borders or anything like that, which honestly, for my lazy self, what a joy. So yes, that is that on knob bending. What a treat. I hope it was for you. I know it was for me. Knob bending, of course, is the precursor to knitting and crocheting, the queen of stitch variety. The needle craft that has truly bound all corners of the world together for thousands of years? Truly a treat. I personally find it really surprising that this form of needlework that has such a long, rich history is not, like, hugely popular now. But maybe this podcast will change that. I'm not saying it will, but that would be fun, right? We could have a so what knob bending bee or something. I hope this speedy journey through the history and technique of knob bending has been informative and fun, and that it's made you want to pick up a knob bending needle and do it yourself. 
Once the pandemic is over and things are safe, I am truly going to go out and get myself one. It is just so cool that making these loops can connect one with at least 8,500 years of stitching history. And isn't that what the study of historic needlework is all about? Finding the past in the present and the present in the past and learning from that past and present relationship? Ugh, heck yeah. And now that's it for me this week. Thanks for listening. As always, I love and appreciate you all, even though I don't really know any of you still. And if you want to go tell your friends about the pod and like, rate, subscribe, review, and anything else you want to do, that would be cool. I would appreciate it. And go out and tell the world about knoll bending and its nine millennia long history. I'm really trying to come up with a pun related to knoll bending, but I'm struggling to, so I'll leave you with a truly terrible pun that makes almost no sense. Thanks for Nall bending your ear to me. Eh? Not great. I'm working on it. I'll let you know if I come up with anything later. Now go out and stitch some stories and make some Nall bound stripy socks like the ancient Egyptians did. Bye! (laughs) 